Let's go together to the Gospel of John, and specifically chapter 5. It's here that we find quite an amazing account of Jesus healing a man. It's also the setting through which I believe he wants to convey a specific message to us tonight. And just as a reminder, because sometimes I feel like it's easy to slip into this mindset for some of us, the Bible isn't fantasy. It's not just another book that belongs in the fiction section of the library, but the stories we find in it are so amazing at times it may feel like it is. The Bible isn't fantasy, it's factual. It's not just tales, it's transformative. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we look at this narrative in John chapter 5 of doing, of Jesus doing something that is, in no other words, amazing. And keep in mind that this is a narrative that has been given actuality by historical accounts. People have validated these stories throughout generations upon generations. So just keep that mindset as we entertain God's word tonight and receive what he has to speak into our lives. John chapter 5 and verse 1, God's word says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. The next few moments we have together, I want to speak to you from the subject of it's time to get up. I have several memories etched out in my brain from my childhood years and growing up in my family, but one of those very specific memories that's etched into my mind was the Sunday morning Mitchell household routine. Now, I know Sunday mornings for most of you that grew up in church look different, but also look the same in a lot of regards, but specifically in our house, it would start with my dad coming down the hallway and letting me know that it's time to get up and get ready. And most of the time, it would start just that calmly. He'd come into my room. He'd shake me, laying on the bed. Hey, son, it's time to get up. Time to rise and shine. Time to get ready for church. And most of the time, I'd do like any other young kid or teenager would do and just <sighs> roll around and fall back asleep. And in a minute, he'd come back down the hallway again. It'd be a little bit more firm this time. Hey, it's time to get moving. Time to get going. I'd roll back over. Eventually, he would come back down the hallway again, and it was a lot more forceful this time. It wasn't a nice, easy shake. Hey, son, it's time to get up. It was like a kick on the end of the bed. And my dad has this w weird kind of raspy, I'm angry kind of voice that would change when he got to that point, and it would turn into just, instead of get up, it's time to get going, it would turn into this, get up, boy. It's time to get up. And there was definitely not going to be a fourth time coming down the hallway. Because if there was, there's going to be a price to pay. Jesus has made an appearance in Jerusalem to participate in, as John tells us, the Feast of the Jews. And we don't know exactly what feast it was. And the Jews had any good number of them that they would celebrate in order to commemorate what God had done in their past. But I can tell you this. 
Jesus didn't make the trip just for the sake of upholding religious tradition. It wasn't a potluck he was concerned with, it was a person. And upon arrival, he enters into a place that has two pools of water, and John describes as a multitude of invalids laying around him. So picture the scene with me. There's this unusual place that has these pools of water. And accounts tell us that something interesting would happen in that place from time to time. Those waters would be stirred, and there's some discrepancy on exactly how that happened and why it happened and what went into it. But apparently whenever those stirrings of those waters happened and whoever was sick, whoever was ill, they could jump into that water and they would be healed of whatever infirmity or disease that they have. And so John is painting the scene with us. He says, when you walk into this place, there is a multitude of invalids. So all these people that are sick, all these people that are hurting, they're diseased, they're laying, they're paralyzed. They're laying around waiting for the opportunity for these pools to be stirred so they could hopefully be the first one into the water so that they could be healed. Now, I think sometimes we get lost with the details in Scripture, and it's no more than just words on a page to us, but this would have been quite the grotesque scene. This would not have been a fun area to be around. This is not the kind of place that people would have intentionally passed by. These are the kind of places that people avoided because of what all was seen there. And you have to imagine all these people that are laying around and they're sick and they're diseased and they've got issues with their flesh. They've got boils. They've got sores. And so you need to begin to take in the details of just how grotesque this place could have been. And when you get around this area, and I'm not trying to gross you out, but I would have to imagine like, just the smell of that place would have probably been repulsive to be around. And they called this place Bethesda, which ironically meant house of mercy or house of grace. And as Jesus walks into this place, he encounters a man that had been paralyzed for 38 years. And I just want to point out that if healing in this instance is dependent upon a foot race to the pool, then being paralyzed does not work in your advantage. Jesus walks into this place, a place that most everyone else would have avoided, but to which he was attracted. I want you to know tonight that it's those ugly, sick, gross, lame places of your life that you try to avoid at all costs that attracts Jesus to you. Why? Because he can do something about it. So Jesus walks in and he sees this man lying there. And I want to point out some specifics for you tonight. The first of which is that Jesus sees what everyone else overlooks. So if you go back in verse 6 to recount the details and keep them fresh in our mind, it says when Jesus saw him lying there. Jesus walks in and he sees this man lying on the ground. He is keenly aware of this man's presence. So many other people walked by this place on a daily basis and never paid any attention to these people. It was just a normal sight for them. They had grown accustomed to the fact that all these people were laying around trying to find healing. You know how it is when things become routine in your life. You just get used to seeing them as a part of your everyday routine. You no longer take notice of them anymore. So every day people would walk by this group of people that were trying to seek healing and they would never pay them any time of day. Why? Because they were the insignificance. They were the outcasts. They were the rejects. They were society's sore spots. And they didn't deserve any attention from all of us who were well off and better off than they were. But Jesus walks in and he looks right at him. And just the intentionality of Jesus' eyes looking at this man speaks to his great love and grace for humanity. David in the Psalms wrote, Who is man 
that you are mindful of him. The son of man that you should care for him. But that's just who our God is. That's just who our Savior is. He is mindful of us as his creation. He does care for us as his creation. And here these multitude of people lay, including this one individual, that everybody else has cast aside and forgotten about. And Jesus walks right in and looks specifically at this man. And listen, just like he walked in and saw that man lying there, he's here tonight and he sees you sitting there. He looks with the same intentionality tonight upon his creation from his throne as he did when he was walking on this earth. He sees each and every person sitting in this place tonight. There's not a person in this room that Jesus has overlooked or just glanced at. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Just so you can see Jesus' intentionality with his gaze, says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And Luke 19, verse 5 says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. So this is the account of Jesus seeing Zacchaeus. In the tree, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. i got to stay at your house today. Luke chapter 7, verses 12 and 13 says, As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Jesus looks with an intentionality and with a care and with a compassion upon his creation. He sees you. You may feel like an insignificant. You may feel like an outcast. You may feel like a reject. You may feel forgotten. But I promise you, Jesus is zeroed in on you. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. His eyes never stop seeking back and forth upon those that he has created. But you know, his seeing really... I think points to an even greater thing. And that's the truth that he also knows. So it's not just that Jesus sees what everyone else overlooks. Jesus knows what everyone else doesn't. If you go back and look in verse 6 again, we see that Jesus saw this man lying there. But the verse goes on and says, and he knew that he had already been there a long time. So the text tells us Jesus sees this man and he knew that he had been there for a long time. Jesus knew the situation. He knew the circumstances of this man's 38-year-long dilemma. Now, how in the world would he know? Did Jesus know this man from birth? Had Jesus been there the whole time? Had he ever had an interaction with this man before? I highly doubt it. In his sovereignty, in his love, in his grace, in his mercy, he looked upon this man and he knew his situation. He knew his circumstances. He knew how long he had been laying in that place. He knew he'd been there for a long time, waiting to be the first into the pool. And listen, on top of all that, he knew the pain. He knew the despair. He knew the loneliness. He knew the sorrow that this man had felt on a day-by-day basis. Men and women, Jesus not only sees you, he knows the situation and the circumstances of your life. He knows that you've been crippled by an unexpected divorce. He knows that you've been paralyzed by depression and suicidal thoughts. He knows that you're lame from that eating disorder that you've been battling and trying to conceal from everybody else. 
He knows that you're numb because in a weak moment you didn't wait for marriage. He knows about that porn addiction that you're trying to keep hidden from everybody else around you. He knows that you've got a diagnosis you haven't told anyone else about. He knows that you're being devastated by fear. He knows that you are drowning in doubt. He knows the depths of your sin and your mistakes. He knows the way in which we daily fall short of his glory. There's not a situation or circumstance of life represented in this place tonight that he doesn't know about. And regardless of what it may be, his grace and his mercy and his love continues in pursuit of us. That's why Jesus walked into this place to begin with. Now don't get upset, don't get down because you are beginning to come aware that Jesus is aware of all these things in your life. Things that may be shameful, things that we may want to hide. Things that we don't want anybody else to know about that we're beginning to find out Jesus already does. Don't worry about that right now because I told you, His grace and His mercy and His love continues in pursuit of you regardless. That's why He walked into this place. And I know we have a hard time believing or accepting this. When we talk about God's grace, when we talk about the love of Jesus, when we talk about His forgiveness and His everlasting love, I don't know about you, maybe y'all don't, maybe it's just me. But I have a hard time accepting all those things. Because I still look at my life and I look at the way I daily fall short. I look at the things that I continue to struggle with on a daily basis in my flesh. And because of that, I think, Jesus, how? No, you can't. You can't love me like that. You can't continue to extend forgiveness. Your grace and your mercies, I know what your word says about them, but they've got to run out sooner or later. And so we become doubtful and we have a hard time believing or accepting this. Why? Because most of us are used to having people walk out whenever our lives get too messy with mistakes. And so, by default, and because of our own past experiences, we expect Jesus to just do the same. That's what I love about this narrative. Jesus didn't walk out. He walked in. Did you hear what I said? Jesus didn't walk out. Jesus walked in. And I don't care how many people have walked out in your life. I don't care if you've had parents walk out. I don't care if you've had siblings walk out. I don't care if you've had friends walk out of your life because it got too messy for them to handle and they decided to leave you hanging high and dry. Jesus doesn't walk out of your lives when those things start showing up. He walks into your life. Tell somebody beside you, Jesus walks in. Grab them and shake them. Tell them Jesus walks in. Somebody in this room needs to hear tonight that Jesus walks in. Jesus walks into broken hearts. Jesus walks into depression and disorder. Jesus walks into sexual failures and addiction. Jesus walks into waiting rooms and consultation. Jesus walks into our most fearful moments, and he does so because he knows that he has the ability to do something about it. Jesus doesn't just walk in to check out the scene. Jesus didn't just walk into that place, a multitude of invalids, and look around and go, What's pathetic in here? Bunch of losers. Oh my goodness. When I get back to heaven, I'm going to question the Father on some of y'all because, like, my goodness. Mm -mm. No. What everybody else is avoiding, Jesus is attracted to, and he walks in and he goes, mm. There was a lot of hurt. In here, there's a lot of pain in this room. There's a lot of sorrow. There's a lot of regret. There's a lot of loneliness. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to do something about that. 
I got a purpose when I walked in here. When Jesus walks into your life, it's always with a purpose. Always with a purpose. He knows all about the depths of your details, and he wants to help. And we can see this because he then makes this man an offer. So Jesus sees what everyone else overlooks. Jesus knows what everyone else doesn't. Jesus offers what no one else can. Go back and look at verse 6. Verse 6 is just absolutely loaded. So he sees the man lying there. He knows that he's already been there for a long time. And he says to him, do you want to be healed? Jesus offers this man healing. An opportunity to walk. Maybe again. Or for the first time ever. We don't know. But the offer, regardless, is do you want to be healed? Jesus was offering to do for this man what no one else, by the way, had been able to do for him. I'm sure this man had been to the doctors. I'm sure he had tried different medication. I'm sure he had gone to physical therapy, but obviously none of those things had been able to help his condition. I got a pinched nerve in my neck. It's been that way for the past, I don't know, seven or eight weeks now. I've been going to the chiropractor trying to get it worked out. And he told me, now, be patient. It's going to take some time. We're going to set you up on this eight-week program. And we're going to see if we can get things straightened out. Again, well, week after week after week after week, keep going back. He's like, we should start seeing some progress. Progress hadn't shown up yet. I'm starting to get frustrated. We're five weeks in. This man was 38 years Jesus offers him what no one else can give. Listen, if somebody would walk up to me right now and say, hey, I'll give you one treatment and your pinched nerve will be taken care of, sign me up. I don't even have to think about it. I don't even have to consider it. Let me know what I got to do. I'll jump right in. Jesus offers this man healing. Do you want to be healed? And when Jesus says that, a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, we would think that that would be met with a response of yes. But this man doesn't give Jesus a direct answer. Look at what he does instead. And his response reveals exactly how we respond so often when Jesus offers healing in our lives. So we need to break away. We've seen all this different stuff that Jesus does. Let's look at us for a second. Jesus offers what no one else can. Man gives excuses for why it can't happen. Go and look at verse 7. After Jesus offers this man healing, he says, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So instead, he begins to give Jesus a reason for why he hasn't been healed yet. I have no one to put me in. Can't get in the pool. And you know, before we think too harshly about him for his seemingly silly response, you know, I want us to remember the state that he had been in for so long. Imagine. Now, I'm a visual kind of learner. And so I want to teach you guys in a visual kind of way to help you understand the gravity of this man's condition. Now, when we say he's laying on a bed, now we're not talking about like he's got the nice sleep number mattress set up in there. And he can push the button and, you know, and it and dumps him up so he can get to where he's going. It's a simple mat, probably about as wide as he was, kind of like this one right here. Now, imagine this man cannot use his legs. And he's laying on that mat and he's waiting for the waters to be stirred. And when he becomes aware of that, as soon as he hears it, he would have to roll over on his side, swing his legs behind him and begin to crawl. Only to get right to the edge and have somebody jump in in front of him. So now what we got to do? 
all the way back. After a amount of time, he lays there. We don't know how often the pool would have been stirred. But eventually it happens again. And as soon as he hears it, only to have somebody beat him in again. Now imagine time after time after time crawling back to that place only to have someone beat you. Having to crawl back to that mat all over again. Imagine the tears. Imagine the sorrow. Imagine the hopelessness that this man felt time and time again. Where was his family? Where were his friends? Did nobody care enough about this man to stick around long enough so that when the waters were stirred, they could scoop him up and take him over there and put him in? He had nobody. Before we get too harsh on his response, I want to show you something because I think a lot of us can relate. And that's the fact that a hopeless heart will most often yield a hopeless response. When you've been hopeless for so long, it doesn't matter if somebody shows up with an offering. More than likely, your response is going to reveal the hopeless state you have lived in for longer than you care to remember. The reality is when Jesus offers healing... A simple yes is all that he's looking for in that moment. He don't need to know why you haven't been yet. He don't need, he don't need to hear the excuses for why it can't happen. All he needs is a yes. And some of you have delayed healing in areas of your life because you want to keep giving Jesus reasons why it can't happen. Do you want to be healed? Well, yeah, Jesus, I do. But I got to fix myself up first. I need to quit the party scene. I need to do better with my church attendance. I need to dig myself out of that depression. I need to axe this addiction that I'm in. Now, do you want to be healed? Well, yes, Jesus, I do. But you just don't know how badly I've messed things up. You don't know how far I've actually gone. You don't know that I didn't just break it in half. I broke it into pieces. And some things are just irreparable. Please stop. None of us possess the power to piece back together the broken pieces of our lives. None of us possess the power to bring healing or restoration that we so desperately need back into our lives. Can I give you an encouragement tonight? Why don't you try trading your reasons for receiving? All Jesus needs is a willing yes. Do you want to be healed? Yes, Lord, I sure do. And then look at what Jesus does next. Jesus heals what feels unhealable. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. 
And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Jesus tells this paralyzed man of 38 years to get up and walk. What an audacious, seemingly insulting thing for Jesus to say to this man. Would you not agree? You wouldn't walk up to someone who's been in a wheelchair that you've known your whole life and just tell them, Hey, get up, man. What are you doing? Aren't you tired of being in that? Why don't you just get up and walk? But this man, without question, got up and walked. And what I've read, I've read this a hundred times in Scripture. I've read this account I don't know how many times. And when I saw that, I'm like, God, that doesn't make any sense. Why would this man just get up and walk? Why on the word of Jesus would he just get up and go? And you may be like, it's obvious, Trey. Is it not obvious? He was talking to Jesus. But he didn't know that. Look in verse 13. It says, after that, Jesus left. And it says, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn. He didn't know he was talking to Jesus. So I'm like, why, God? Why would he stand up on the word of this man he'd never seen before? And I believe it's because Jesus had the audacity to say to this man what no one else had ever said to him before. Could it be that Jesus had such an audacious message of love and grace to speak into your life, just like he did the life of this man, that no one else has ever had the boldness or the courage to say to you before? Imagine all the doctors, all the visits, all the tests, all the physical therapy. Never once did anybody just say to this man, hey, have you ever tried to walk? And I would imagine that as he heard that from Jesus' mouth, he probably looked up to him and he thought, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. 38 years, I haven't walked. This man's telling me to get up. What do I have to lose? And he gets up and he walks. No one else had been willing, or can I say this? No one else even had the right to say that to this man. In the same way, maybe no one else has been willing to tell you. As a matter of fact, nobody else even has the right tonight other than Jesus to tell you to get up from your bed of depression or disorder. No one else has the right to tell you to get up from anxiety or addiction, immorality, guilt, or shame. Why? Because everyone in here are sinners. So there has to be a standard, which is Jesus, that steps into our life and says something that only he can say to tell you that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, not to condemn you, not to judge you, but to save your soul from hell. To show you that he has the power to heal. And as if telling this man to get up wasn't bold enough, Jesus tells him to take his bed with him. You would think that this man, this would be the last thing he'd want to pick up. Wouldn't you agree? I don't want to go get, go get my bed. I don't want to carry that around with me. I want to leave that behind. I never want to see that nasty thing again. I don't wonder why Jesus told him to pick up his bed. I'm going to tell you what I think. Because now, as this man walks away healed and restored, put back together, this right here that used to represent his trial is now part of his testimony. This thing right here that used to be a part of his suffering it's now part of his story. This thing right here that used to represent his hurt now shows his healing. I don't know how long he carried it around afterwards. Maybe the rest of his life. But I know this, when people came in contact with him, they saw him carrying his bed. Whether they knew him or not, they probably asked, hey man, what are you doing with that bed? <laughs> Funny you should ask. Let me tell you, about this man named Jesus who brought healing into my life when nobody else could. Let me tell you about this man named Jesus 
who restored my brokenness when everybody else told me I was hopeless. Let me tell you about this man named Jesus who walked into a room that everybody else had walked out of and forgotten. I think he's calling some of you tonight to get up from your bed, whatever it may be. This is Doug Ferris, and I'm blessed to be the pastor here at Underwood Baptist Church. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. It's our prayer that you'll do more than listen to the sermon or gather religious information. We want you to encounter God, and we pray that he will impact your life. If you'd like to contact us for any reason, please go to our website at underwoodbaptist.org. All our contact information is there, and we look forward to hearing from you. I hope you are blessed by today's message.